cool. All right. Let's, uh, yeah, how about we send it? Uh, Bowtie Devil, uh, welcome to Daily DGENs. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Uh, go over a few talking points. Uh, if you're not familiar with Devil, he's got a background in, uh, he's got a background in Linux and computers. And most of all, reverse osmosis of his, uh, <laughs> of his water. Yeah, uh, that's true. That's a particular niche specialty of mine. Absolutely. When I, when I saw that tweet, it made me think of uh, Kanye West on the Joe Rogan podcast last fall uh, talking about fluoride. And, uh, <laughs> is that what drove you? Was it the fluoride or was it just all the other crap in the, going on? Well, it's, it's all the stuff in our water, but fluoride was a big one. And uh, that's the one that seems to divide people the most. And I don't know why. Uh, it, it seems like a pretty straightforward thing. Like it's a, it's a heavy metal. It's not necessarily good for you. Uh, even if it is good for your teeth, it doesn't do you any good to swallow it and then put it into your stomach. Like there are no teeth in there. Right. So I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> and it calcifies your, your pineal gland. Oh yes. I've heard all about this, but I have no idea about the mechanism, but I believe it. I, I know that I certainly feel better when I drink good water. Now, is it really ideal to, or optimal to be drinking water? Correct me here if I'm wrong. Reverse osmosis is devoid of minerals. Yes, that's true. Well, it, it's not completely. Uh, you're never going to get it 100% just water. But for the most part, it's about as pure as you can get without really, really going above and beyond. And the common argument I've heard is that uh, you're drinking dead water. There's no minerals in it. There's no sustenance. And that's true, but you shouldn't be uh, getting your nutrition from water anyway. That's what food is for. True. And if you, if you, if you're drinking quote unquote, you know, dead water, but you're eating good food, then at least you're not doing anything wrong with your water. So I think it's a net win. What's the Hippocratic oath doctors take is do no harm. Indeed. Now, and this isn't necessarily feasible or, or realistic for, for most of us, um, unless you're, say, bowtie bulldog living in the mountains. Uh, <laughs> your ideal water would be something clean with natural minerals. But in the context of choosing between tap water versus osmosis, better yeah. to just sterilize or uh, purify it. Yes, completely agree. Okay. Cool. If you happen to be living next to a natural aquifer with a bunch of minerals dissolved into it, good on you. That's fantastic. Yeah. But, but I don't. I've, I've so got lucky. a tap here. You'll find, a, uh, find an island that has uh, some artesian wells or something. It's a little tricky to find. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, well, we're going to be in the catbird seat come DGen 2035. So right. <laughs> we can find an island with an artesian well. I don't think it'll be a problem. Good looks, good looks. <laughs> uh, moving on, I want to touch on uh, a tweet you had a couple of days ago from uh, – you mentioned decentralized servers, domains, and hosting. Uh, mm -hmm. More elaborate on kind of where you're coming from and, and what you'd like to see uh, mm -hmm. in that area. Well, uh, at the risk of getting overly political uh, – do you remember what happened to uh, to Trump uh, right around 
what is it, January of this year, when he oh. got summarily booted off of all the social media platforms. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I, uh, mm-hmm. he, uh, um, the, the the brother of one of my family members is uh, on the C suite. I won't say which position because that would very mm-hmm. dox. <laughs> of course, my members uh, was part of that decision, and it was it was interesting talking to my uncle about his brother and how it's like I'm like Jack, like he's all about Bitcoin, but yet censorship, and it's like. But I realize it's a it's a public company. Mm-hmm. Like you've got the board and the shareholders. Like you you don't really own that company. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Elon Musk doesn't really own Tesla. I mean, he has a lot more control than most CEOs. But it's yeah. Uh, the, the interesting thing about that situation um, is that big companies, when they get big enough, they become almost unaccountable when they have the power to come together to silence a sitting president, even if he was only weeks away from leaving, uh, that should scare the shit out of you. It does scare the shit out of me. Because uh, when, when someone with that much power still can't effectively fight it, like what chance do you and I have? None. And the, the, <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Essentially, and the only way to avoid getting uh, getting caught in that trap is to think about how uh, how much of your power you've given to people that control a centralized platform. Uh, because I like to think of central versus decentral along a continuum, and. You seem like a big picture guy, so you, you could probably get behind this analogy where in in central uh, sort of authority, you delegate your power and responsibility to someone else, and a bunch of people do the same thing. With a decentralized approach, you take the power back at the cost of um, coordination. So it's, it's between control and freedom. And, and I think that the way the internet is set up right now uh, is is too far towards centralization. Uh, and I think that it's a byproduct of the internet being relatively easy to use, at least compared to how it was uh, 20 years ago when I first started using it. So is decentralization decentralized platforms let's say let's take an analogy of uh, exchanges like uniswap is that where user interface and centralized applications were 20 years ago uh well okay i'm missing it i don't know not necessarily don't feel like you can't call me uh call me stupid if i'm if i'm not picking it up (laughs) Oh, I wouldn't do that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably making this a little bit too abstract. Uh, but it, if we want to go along the the exchange route, I can certainly talk about an experience I had with a central exchange, and then contrast that with a decentralized exchange. Um, my my introduction to crypto uh, came first in I think 20. 13. So I've been aware of this stuff for a very long time, even though I didn't do much with it for, you know, the last, uh, 
let's see, let's count backwards, eight. So seven years or so. I didn't understand it, didn't really pay much attention to it until the beginning of this year is when I really started to take another close look at it. But I was a very early adopter of Bitcoin and I'd, I'd heard about it from a, from a podcaster. And this was pretty, um, pretty hot on the heels of the 2008-2009 uh, mortgage financial crisis. Right, right. Uh, which happened right as I was beginning my professional career. And so I was keeping a very close eye on uh, just what the hell the economy was doing and who was pulling the levers. Uh, and I ended up buying a bunch of silver and I bought five Bitcoin. Uh, at the time, I think they were about 10 bucks each. <laughs> <laughs> so you bought a, you bought a drink? Yeah, yeah. Man, I'm going to need something stronger when I start telling this story. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but uh, my, uh, I didn't really understand what it was. I just thought, okay, this seems like a good inflation hedge. Why not? Let's give it a shot. So, so I, I bought it on the infamous uh, Mount Gox exchange, transferred it to my wallet, and then. Uh, uh, experimented with some some farming and mining and did a little bit of that for six months and thought okay this is kind of fun i can i can send this around they can send things to me i can't do much with it whatever uh, i didn't really understand it so i didn't care a whole lot about it and uh, then a couple of years later i, I saw on the news th that they'd gone up to like maybe 250 or 300 dollars, and i was like oh cool i remember i i have five of those things cool i could go and uh buy something nice with it sure. i didn't understand i was not in it for the tech i i didn't have lofty aspirations and i wasn't connected to the scene at all so uh the only way to, to sell them was to send your coins back to the central exchange and so i did uh, i sent them back to mount gox and then i was going to sell them and uh i i encountered the uh, uh kyc the, the know your customer stuff and yeah. uh, they said, if you want to sell this, you have to upload a picture of your driver's license. And I was like, that's weird. I don't want to do that. Whatever. So uh, I just forgot about it and then left the things on Mount Gox. And then about a year later, I got an email in, in Japanese informing me that the Mount Gox trust had been established to, uh, to deal with the fallout of a hack. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess there goes my Bitcoin. So there it goes. Whatever. Easy come, easy go. And uh, that's what happens when you delegate your responsibility and your sovereignty to some central point of failure. Because uh, I didn't do anything wrong other than being ignorant. Somebody else uh, did not take care of their private keys. They did not keep their databases secure. Someone came in there and then liquidated everything. So I got punished for someone else's mistake, and that's what happens when you rely too much on a central authority. Uh, contrast that with uh, with Uniswap, for example, the the first decks that I ever used maybe a couple months ago. Uh, they uh, allowed me to get in, get out, make swaps, and then go about my merry way without any kind of of roadblock they didn't ask me who i was they didn't care uh even if they did i suppose i could have given them fake info i didn't have to, to upload my driver's license i didn't have to tell them anything other than what my address was and what token i wanted to swap with the other one and how much and it was a very painless experience other than uh the technical 
research I had to do to figure out just how to use it. So I think that uh, decentralization is, is the wave of the future because we've seen too many too big to fails actually fail. No one can be trusted with that much responsibility. So you need to um, learn how to control and take ownership of the things that are important to you. So uh, the platforms that we're using right now, Twitter and Substack in particular, are – go ahead. I'm glad you brought up – mentioned Substack because I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you and also reading your, your thread on – you've chosen to host a self-hosted server, uh, server in lieu of Substack. Uh, mm-hmm. so definitely curious on what that looks like uh, in terms of at least, I mean, a lot of jungle animals have Substacks and many more mm-hmm. are coming. How do, you, how do you do that? High-level overview, the server, web domain, hosting, and actually do like a newsletter without giving up so much control like Substack? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's, it's not all that difficult. Uh, but similar to the Uniswap example I used before, uh, once you understand the process and someone has shown you and explained what the steps are and how they fit together, it's very straightforward to do. But it's not the kind of thing that you can just stumble into and then know how to how to deal with a DNS server and then set up um, a Linux install on a cloud and then hook up some sort of an SSL certificate in front of it. Like it, it's it's not 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 intuitive. But uh, that's what I'm interested in talking about because I, I have these skills. Uh, I think just because I'm curious and I started using the internet at a point where it was still hard to do when you had to figure these things out for yourself. And it's only gotten easier, which is, I think, led to a sense of complacency because uh, when I first started blogging, if I could have just signed up for a Substack, I would have. But there, there were no easy or cheap hosting services and I didn't have any money. So I thought, okay, I'll just figure out how to do it myself, run my own server. Uh, it might go offline or be a little weird, you know, cause this is a homebrew situation, but I learned all the parts. And in essence, Substack is just a, a very limited blogging system that has a, a payment processor and some user management and a comment system wrapped into it. Now, uh, I'm not on Substack, so I don't know what it looks like on the creator's interface, but from the user interface, it looks just like a very bare bones blog. It looks almost the same way, whether you're publishing or reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, difference is you go click create post and it's like you're filling out a little Google doc. And when you're done, you, mm-hmm. you publish uh, Okay. Yeah, many, many, many little blog that kicks out as it. Yep. Yeah, and then when I think of all of, of the good value that people have already put into these substacks, like there must be 20 of them already, and everybody has at least one post. Like that's many, many man hours of very smart people's time and attention. Uh, if, if somebody decides over at Substack HQ that we don't really like these jungle fellows and uh, we don't like that they're anonymous and I think they like crypto a little too much, we're just going to get rid of them. Like, what recourse do you have? Can, can you recover any of that effort that you've already put in? Uh, no. Now I do see two counterpoints is one, you do own the email list mm-hmm. and two, 
if you're creating your posts offline, saving them, you at least have maybe not the intellectual property rights, but you do have the content, mm-hmm. most of the written work. Yes. Which isn't a perfect solution, but it's, I guess, better than yeah. Nada. Yeah, you're right. I, I agree with you. You could certainly take steps to mitigate uh, potential loss, but wouldn't it be better to just have control over it from the start? Absolutely. And so as an example, and here's where I'm, I'm struggling is mm-hmm. last week I, I bought, are you familiar with unstoppable domains? Yes. Yeah. So I bought a bowtiedbarbary.crypto, which you can, I mean, type in your browser right now. And of course you have to use brave or you have to use the unstoppable domain to even see the dot cryptos. So I own that on my wallet uh, my, as an NFT, the dot crypto domain. Listeners not familiar. It's like how the avatar animals, ERC, uh, excuse me, 721, it's an NFT and it's a mm-hmm. web route. It's a web domain. And I only pay the fee once. It was like 40 bucks in Ethereum and that's it. However, I don't have the functionality to easily, emphasis, easily set up a newsletter, set up a, a e-commerce or a blog using that dot crypto domain website. And I'd like to do that, but for now I have bowtiedbarbary.com mm-hmm. using like a WordPress plugin. Yeah. Well, I was talking uh, in my in my thread today about IPFS. Yes. Um, as a as a very high level overview of what that does, it's uh, it's akin to a content delivery network, uh, sometimes uh, abbreviated as CDN. Uh, it's a way for you to to publish content over a peer to peer network uh, that is that is shared similarly to how torrents work. Are you familiar with them? Uh, are you referring to like BitTorrent? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, but for, uh, for listeners, could you just do a explain it like a fifth uh, to a fifth grader? Yeah, sure. Uh, t- a torrent is the decentralized version of an FTP server. Now, it, if that's a little too technical, uh, an FTP server is one server that sends a file to one person. It is the very definition of a centralized file storage protocol. Uh, BitTorrent, by contrast, uh, is a many-to-many or peer-to-peer system where whoever wants to publish data and share it with others connects, and then the next person downloads from them, and then the two of them have the copy of that file. And then a third person who wants it downloads apart from one and apart from the other. And the more people that you have connected and sharing these, the more robust the network is. No uh, effect. Yeah, and uh, Metcalf's law. Yes. So, if shoot, I think I I think I got lost trying to remember Metcalf. So law. now it gets to how like Tor network. Yes. Uh, well, actually, Tor is a little bit different. Uh, I'm not. We can get we can get into Tor soon. Uh, let me loop back to IPFS. Uh, IPFS stands for the Interplanetary File System, which is kind of a, a science fiction-y sort of name. But the way that it works is similar to BitTorrent, where it, in, instead of publishing some some web content on a standard server, like you'd get at a .com, you instead publish that uh, as a standalone block of content, and then you make it available over IPFS. And then anybody else 
who accesses that content then stores it temporarily. I think the default is 12 hours. So if as long as there is one person storing a copy of that content, it will live forever. And it cannot be taken down by anybody because IPFS only references content uh, with the name of the content itself, a special hash, as opposed to being accessed through a, a domain name. So for example, if I, if I publish some article on bowtiedevil.com, uh, somebody can go attack that .com. They can remove my control over it. They can try to try to take down um, the the ownership of it. They can get it blacklisted with a DNS server. But if I publish it over IPFS, there is no way for anybody to s say that this can't be served because it's on a distributed network, and you can't tell everybody no. You can tell you can tell one person no, but you can't tell everybody. There's it, no way to cut off. Yeah. And if you if you publish the same content over both, then it makes it very accessible to people who don't want to mess with IPFS, as well as very resilient to the people who care enough to access it over the distributed backend. And that's what I plan to do. I'm going to show people how to do the, the user-friendly.com method, as well as publish it in a robust way on the decentralized web. It's going to be fun. So... Going back to his unstoppable domains, for example, buying a .crypto domain mm -hmm. as an NFT, and now for web hosting, would that be solved with BitTorrent? Hmm. Well, uh, I don't have any unstoppable domains, but I imagine that they that they probably allow you to point that domain into an IPFS hash. And yes, they, yes, they do. Yes. Okay, well then. Your your .crypto domain, if you set up your own site and then publish it over IPFS, you can link those two. So you'll say that bowtiedbarbary.crypto will always go to your hashed homepage, the one that you generated. And people can always get to it as long as you keep a copy of it. And going from having – so the site's up. So how would you build the functionality of – a Substack or, or a blog slash newsletter function. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the wonderful thing about uh, open source in general and Linux in particular is that enterprising nerds love to figure this kind of stuff out because they instinctively chafe at uh, centralized control. And whenever the only tool they have is some centralized thing that they have to pay to use or that or that isn't well supported or it's buggy or they don't trust the people who make it they take it upon themselves to program an alternative so there are open source web servers there are open source blogging platforms there are open source newsletter managers there are open source commenting systems there's open source everything uh, most of the internet runs on open source. It's it's just the uh, the stuff that you're used to interacting with here on your computer that tends to be uh, closed source. So the the code is there, the tools are there. Um, yes, it's more. Of, is it more of a question of network effects? 
where, okay, we're using Twitter because, well, that's where most of the audiences are. We're using Substack because that's where the people are. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in terms of Twitter, yes, I completely agree with you. Uh, there are open source alternatives to Twitter. Uh, you've got Mastodon, but uh, almost nobody's on Mastodon. So what's the point? If you're, trying to, if you're trying to grow your audience, then you may just be stuck using a centralized platform. But in terms of of the World Wide Web, to use an old 90s term, that is about as decentralized as it gets. Uh, and everything runs on it. And you don't have to ask any one person to use it. So if, if you control your data, for example, all of your content that you've already published on Substack, if you have a copy of that and you choose to go the route of a... Uh, open source static site generator, which I talked about, then you can can publish it to any particular .com on any particular host. If somebody tells you that they don't like it and they're going to shut it down, then you can simply pick it up and move it somewhere else. And you can play whack-a-mole with them for as long as you want, or you can just point them to your .crypto domain and everything's good. But you don't have that same option when you're dealing with Substack. No, you don't. So I am, I am very uh, distrustful of that of that platform in particular. Even though I don't think anybody is is posting anything that would uh, that would draw too much attention. But still, I I don't want to give them the option. Nope. It's uh, it, I think the cat's out of the bag. You you mentioned it earlier with, you know, POTUS forty five getting uh censored it's it's like damn like head of the most the largest most powerful military the world has ever seen was just censored the equivalent of you know in the 80s radio and programs and tv stations just deciding to cut the let's say reagan off mm -hmm. or bush senior it's yeah. a terrifying precedent yeah it's yeah, it's unprecedented, uh, unprecedented, and I hope we never see it again. Yes, can't we all? Uh, your thesis. Yes. And I'm assuming you've read Sovereign Individual, but I'll read it for the uh, any listeners after this is sent out. Quote, if you want to be a sovereign individual who relies on Internet money generated from an Internet business, connecting and collaborating with Internet people, you need one of two things. Linux knowledge on running your own server and access to someone with that knowledge. Walk you through that. Translated from my caveman, my caveman brain. <laughs> well, we're, we're all digital natives now. Yes. Uh, if, if this is the world where we want to live and we want to decouple our, our labors from the real world and then choose to put it out there into the ether, then you need to understand how the platform that you're using works. Uh, otherwise you're going to forever be at the mercy of whoever is willing to sell a solution to you. And they often don't have your best interest in mind. And then it's going to be what the blog is all about. So, uh, I'm going to do a couple of very basic posts at the start just to, uh, to discuss what open source is, what Linux is in particular, how to install it in a very user-friendly way, and then 
how to get around the system once you have it installed. And then once people feel comfortable with that, then we'll start doing some more application stuff, like how do you set up a web server? How does a web server work? How do you put a security certificate in front of it to make sure that your uh, your users aren't being compromised? Uh, how do you encrypt files on your server? How do you send them securely? How do you run your own email server? Like the the number of things that you can do yourself is virtually limitless, and tools have gotten so sophisticated that you don't even need to know that much to do it other than uh, the patience to try and an open mind to fail a little bit along the way because none of this is all that crazy but you have to be willing to put in a little bit of sweat because uh, this sort of thing isn't the easy route and it's not the one that mainstream media is going to tell you that you should do. Like, you're never going to turn on the news and have people say, you should take control over your data. You should stop putting it in the cloud. You should stop using free services that sell your information. They don't have your best interest in mind. As uh, I'm sure it was Plato, one of, the, one of the philosophers, there's an easy way and there's a right way. <laughs> Indeed. How is your, so you mentioned, of course, <laughs> you, you had some coin in Mount Gox and uh, thank you. Uh, what was his name? Markelis? What was the French guy who, who ran that? Oh, I don't know. Um, anyways, I mean, you were there pre, pre-2014. So, yeah. I mean, I feel old having experienced the 2017 run and seeing people <laughs> make the same mistakes that I made now in 2021, the whole PO, you know, proof of work versus proof of stake, uh, block size debate, and so on. Uh, I'm kind of curious: is how does it, or do you see common themes or common patterns? What is that like experiencing now a third bull run? Assuming you were there, you you know, you're getting in there a little bit before 2013, around then, and so you've seen two full cycles already, and this is your, your third one at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, I confess that I'm not the guy to ask about previous cycles because when I had it the first time, I didn't know what I had, and then I lost it, and then I sat out the next bull run. Like uh, I was so burned by the whole thing, I didn't even bother right. until, I, until I started seeing uh, the bulls talking about it at the end of uh, uh, 2019 and i was like all right you know i should pay a little more attention to this stuff so this is my first complete bearable market okay what was your your inflection point like where did you get involved with the wall street playboys boat type bull that was it uh right at the end of 2015 uh in the run-up to the 2016 election uh i was not uh not posting on Twitter, but I was certainly doing a lot of reading because there was a lot of great trolling at the time. <laughs> it was a it was a golden era for shit posting. Golden era of shit posting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 I would just spend forever just just reading all kinds of wrong think opinions and just laughing at all the people that were just expert meme creators. And it, it's a very similar vibe to what we've got going on right now, like the very similar kind of personalities. Uh, live in the jungle, I've noticed. Have you seen anything like this before in terms of offline or online, the kind of 
people, minds, interests, personalities uh, that are showing up on Discord, Twitter, spaces? No, no, this is unique. Uh, I don't quite know what to think of it other than to uh, hang on with both hands and enjoy the ride. <laughs> like I can tell that this is something special, even though I don't really know how to explain why. Right. Not that I was around, but it could this, I always think of the Paul Krugman quote, who, of course, uh, <laughs> Nobel Prize in economics and uh, wrote all the AP econ textbooks every American high school student has to read. Oh, yeah. uh, the internet will never be more than a fax machine. <laughs> said in 1998. And, uh, is this how the birth of the internet was 25 years ago where most people either ignored it or didn't think this is revolutionary? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, my first experience with, with the internet was uh, with a, a service called America Online. And, and I think it was like version two when my family got a computer with a modem. And back then, it, it, it was a, uh, <laughs> this is going to date me, it, it was a 9600 baud modem, which uh, wasn't even fast enough to have a K at the end. So the 14.4K the modems came later. <laughs> and that probably dates me too. So yeah. uh, I, I had dial-up internet with, with America Online that, that used to charge you by the hour. And it, it, was, it, it was a very limited sort of a walled garden uh, you, you could sign in, you could use the service, and you, you could read messages, and you could go to a couple of different keywords, and you could see what was going on. And I thought it was just amazing. Uh, my mind was blown. Like, I, I must have been seven or eight. I can't really remember. But uh, nobody else around me thought that it was nearly as cool as I did. I, my parents uh, signed up for the service just to uh, placate me and keep me bugging them but i spent as much time on there as i could and when when the walled garden of, of america online came down and, and and the internet service provider started coming around uh, maybe a couple of years later you got access to just the the internet without any filters and uh, i've i've never been the same since and uh it's it was so um complicated to use back in those days that normies just didn't understand and they didn't want to put in the time. And that's exactly the way blockchain, Web3, crypto is right now. You have the ultra enthusiasts who see something that nobody else does and they try to evangelize it to their friends who just roll their eyes and they're like, whatever, it's tulips, it's a bunch of bullshit, uh, you know, do something real with your life. Do something real with your life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah, here we are, and it's it's not going to stop. These these marches toward progress don't just stop. And I think that the uh, the genie has been let out of the bottle, and anybody who could have stopped it uh, either didn't because they didn't notice or because they couldn't. But I don't really care because it's here to stay, and this is the world that we're going to live in. And in another 10 years, uh, the version of, of Web3 that we see now is going to be like uh, getting on getting on um, your smartphone. It's going to be easy, 
all the user experiences are going to be great. Uh, no one's going to need to understand how a blockchain works, worry about gas fees. Uh, they won't even know what a token is, and they won't care because it, it's just going to be the way, the way that things are. And uh, we're going to have all kinds of uh, government intervention in that. We're going to have uh, central bank uh, digital currencies and all that. But I believe it will exist alongside the true currencies that we're looking at right now. They're going to stand the test of time. The Lindy effect is going to hold true. Lindy effect. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole nother tangent. And in, of course, I've tweeted about it. But it, it seems not many people know what that is. Like network effects, I find a lot of people have heard of network effects. They hear of like the growth of Facebook or iPhone users or Instagram. And it's like, all right, network effects. But Lindy effect. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that's for non-perishable things. The longer it's been around, the longer you expect it to be around. So, for example, a thousand years from now, what's more likely to be around? The Bible or Kanye West album? And everyone thinks <laughs> the Bible. It's obvious when you take it to the extreme. And, and yes. of course, we see Bitcoin 12 years versus every other altcoin is, you know, how many years? Mm-hmm. Where do you kind of stand in that whole, like, proof of work, proof of stake uh, a debate. Uh, uh, do you mean with respect to Ethereum? Mainly Ethereum, um, and of course, any other you know, proof of stake coin is. Do you see as it's it, it's more secure in the context of Lindy effect and network effects and security to go proof of stake in the long mm-hmm. run, or? is maybe there's other motives for why people are trying to push for proof of stake over proof of work. Oh boy. That's a hell of a question. Uh, I don't, I don't know the answer to it because I'm not enough of an expert on the Ethereum blockchain or hell, I should be honest with you. I'm not enough of an, of a, of an expert on blockchains in general. Uh, the way that I understand it is that proof of stake has a lower barrier to entry and proof of work because uh, not many people have the desire or the knowledge to run their own node even though running your own node is something that i'm going to teach you so hell one yeah plug, one more plug for the blog um my, like my my mom is never going to run an ethereum node uh nobody in my family is ever going to run an ethereum node but if they have uh, if they've shifted to a proof of stake and it's easy to, to lend your stake to a staking pool or a validator in exchange for rewards, then all of a sudden the people who don't care to run a node and don't want to and don't see the value suddenly become one extra um, one extra node in the network. I, I am uh, reusing the word node, but I, I probably should have thought of a better one. Uh, if you can get more people connected via proof of stake, then the strength of the network goes up because the the value of the network goes up with each new user. And if you can bring the, the barrier to entry down by shifting to proof of stake, then you should do it. If you can do that with, without uh, sacrificing security. If you have these pool, uh, 
mining pools or uh, excuse me, staking pools. Mm-hmm. How is that different than say the current banking or, you know, 401k investing paradigm where you've got a lot of small players and that money goes into large institutions who then wield enormous influence because proof of stake rewards those who have the most capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is definitely a risk. Uh, I have no idea how they're going to address that, but I can see certainly if, if, uh, if the big institutions in the next 10 years scoop up a big bulk of the, of the, of the ether, and then they control the nodes, that, then that's a real problem. Uh, but the nature of a open source project is such that if that ever happened, the users who were not uh, on the side of the oligarchs could choose to fork it. And this is this is this has happened before with Ethereum right. itself. Ethereum uh, Classic, right? Mm-hmm. Ethereum versus Ethereum Classic, except that uh, with that previous fork, uh, everybody wanted to to stay with the current maintainers. But if if uh, Vitalik ever loses control, and s- some shady group starts pulling the strings somehow, then enough good people and enough smart people will say. Hey, check this out. Uh, this ain't right. We're gonna fork it, and we're gonna do Ethereum Super Double Classic. Right, right. <laughs> the the Ethereum value Deluxe. Ethereum mm-hmm. Big Mac. Ethereum <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the value of a system that you take over loses value when everybody leaves. Right. So there's a natural game theory there that I don't know the math behind, but. Uh, there's a natural break on how much power someone can acquire. Now block size. So Elon Musk tweeted a couple weeks ago. He's talking about Dogecoin and increasing the block size uh, 100x. And he goes, mm-hmm. oh, cheaper transactions and faster transactions, you can get more transactions in, the, in each mempool. And then he also mentioned reducing the time between blocks. Mm-hmm. So first things that come to mind are, well, uh, the size of a block is an unpriced externality, right? That data. So one megabit every 10 minutes for Bitcoin is like 50 gig a year. But if it was 100 megabits every 10 minutes, that'd be like five terabytes every year for a node and that's now now expensive and difficult for any person to just run a node with their PC. Yes. And so, yes, block size goes up, more transactions per block, and it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Now mm-hmm. it's cheaper to commit transactions, more expensive to verify. So the trade-off between do you want it to be expensive to commit a transaction and cheap to verify or, or vice versa and then the time between block sizes, my understanding is Satoshi in the white paper or in one of his forums chose 10 minutes because it takes time for the world to synchronize every mm-hmm. 10 minutes. And doing it, say, every two and a half minutes, as Elon Musk suggested, would be uh, you have more orphan blocks. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of thinking out loud here is like, is Elon Musk making the same mistakes myself and many others when we first get into Bitcoin and we, we are like, Oh, Bitcoin cash, Litecoin, these are better for the, yeah. Or is he, maybe he understands that, but he's, I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around because there, there seems to be contradictions in 
uh, it's hard for me to, to fathom that Elon Musk isn't understanding something. Yeah, it it's difficult for me to assume that too. Um, there was a a, a post that, that Vitalik made on his blog. Uh, I think it may be the latest one where where he where he talks about exactly this thing, where uh, the thing that gets sacrificed when you choose to increase transaction speed and block size is um, the the decentralization. And it, it, the reason that happens is because as you increase block size and as you increase transaction speed and throughput, that makes a higher and higher uh, load on individual nodes or validators to the point where if you increase it so fast and so big that only supercomputers can validate the block at, at full speed, then you can only have 10 nodes. And it's very easy to compromise a network that small. Uh, Vitalik's post is essentially outlining the reasons why he is, he's maintained the Ethereum block size uh, and the transaction limit and, and the gas limit where they are so that user hardware, or sorry, uh, user run nodes can operate on consumer grade hardware. So uh, th there's a natural increase as you go, but if you're, if you're looking to, to 100x times 100x these things, uh, no one can keep up. That trilemma of trade-offs between security, scalability, and decentralization. That's right. Absolutely. Everything's. A I mean, we're talking about decentralized servers and web hosting versus the ease of using Substack. It's like there's always a trade-off. Yep. There's nothing free. Nothing free. You either pay for it up front or you pay for it at the end. Absolutely. Uh, High-level question, if you could go back, Devil, if you can go back to 2000s, uh, mm -hmm. what's something you would do differently with the perspective, knowledge, mindset you have? Uh, hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, what's something you would do differently? Well, the benefit of, of, of hindsight is I could make all the right moves. So, oh, uh, so naturally, I would. <laughs> But uh, if there's, I'm going to give you the easy answer and the more profound one. So the easy answer is that in the 2000s, I would have paid more attention to, to Bitcoin in its early days. I would have taken it more seriously, actually understood the technology and took better care of it. Uh, if, if I could have done that, I wouldn't have to work anymore. Wouldn't that be something? Right, right. <laughs> uh, and the, the more profound answer is, is that I would have taken better stock of the skills that I developed already, which is which is mainly uh, deep knowledge of of Linux and open source software, and I would have made something more of that. Uh, I did it as a hobby for for a decade, just because I thought it was fun. And if if I'd ever had the instinct to just turn this into to a monetizable skill, then I wouldn't have to work anymore. Right. <laughs> Always goes back to that. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the exact same lesson. So I'm trying, I'm trying my best to, to make up for lost time on the crypto front and on the side income front. 
So I'm I, I'm trying to get there. I'm way behind, but I'm hustling. Now here's on on the subject of time is I think it was Anthony Papia. I mean, the idea has been around, but he popularized it. Time billionaires. 31 years is 1 billion seconds. So most of us mm. are, with a reasonable probability, can, can expect to live another 31 years. Time billionaires. Warren Buffett, in my opinion, would trade all of his dollars for seconds. Mm-hmm. Whether believing he can make the money back or not, if he could buy his youth and trade places with a 20-year-old, he'd do it. Yes. If context of Bitcoin, let's say it continues these four-year cycles or something along the lines of, would you rather today be 10 years older, so give up the next 10 years of whatever, and be 100 times wealthier, or be where you are today? Uh, I would stay here. Hell yeah. I'll drink to that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I didn't even have to think about it. Like there's a lot of good stuff in the next 10 years that I want to be here for. Absolutely. I do like your, it, it, I mean, buying Bitcoin when it was single digits. <laughs> You're the prime example of everyone in hind- hindsight 2020. It's like, oh, you got lucky or you're just dumb lucky that you bought Bitcoin. It's like you were not only dumb enough to buy it, but people were dumb enough to not sell it. After it 10x, 100x, 1000x, it's like, dude, what you waiting for? Like, <laughs> this isn't supposed to happen. It's internet money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's magic. Uh, everyone's a critic. <laughs> so, 2035, what's uh, wrap up here soon? At 2035, like, what, what's the vision? If you could be doing anything with your time, and, and we've discussed Linux, but kind of outside that, like, mm-hmm. what do you do in your time? Do you golf? Do you fish? Do you, uh, I mean, write comics? Like, what's <laughs> what's what's Devil kind of do uh, when his his computer's off? Well, I spend a lot of time on the computer. Right. A lot of my, yeah, uh, a lot of my life is spent either working at the job or working hard to, uh, to try to store up energy, uh, as my, as my side income. Uh, I, I liken it to a, uh, to a flywheel on an engine. The thing has got a bunch of inertia. Uh, so it continues to spin after you put energy into it. Uh, the, the trap that I'm in right now and that I'm trying to escape with a lot of effort is, is that as soon as I stop pushing, uh, the money dries up. So I've got a I've got a time for uh, for money exchange, and I'm I'm trying my best to uh, to leverage that in, into an ownership stake. I don't know how long that's going to take, but but uh, I feel like I'm getting close. But uh, I also don't want want to rely on that because that's another source of centralization. Like if somebody at the company decides that I'm that that they don't like me anymore, or that I've said something. Uh, silly in public that they don't like, then right. you know, they get rid of me, <sighs> and then I'm scrambling. So I am, am working hard to decentralize my own life, uh, and jo- joining the jungle is a big part of that because I've got a I've got a very valuable skill that I can offer people, and 
And I think that uh, it's it's unlikely to, to replace what I've got going on, but it's a good base to build other things. Uh, I'm I'm working on my own uh, learning stack to develop software as a service stuff. And so that's a flywheel that I charge up every night. I spend an hour after the after the family goes to bed, and I learn Python, and I learn Django, and I try to piece it all together so that I can create something that works for me while I'm not there, something that makes me money while I sleep. Uh, but it's not all just uh, relentless hustle. I don't have that much energy. Uh, I... I try to get in as much much family time as I can too, because these are these are the moments that you can't miss when your kids are young. There's a uh, it is Warren Buffett would trade his dollars for seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to sell these ones, but I do want to make sure that uh, that the kiddos have have a nice life. Absolutely, doing it for them, not for me. It's too late for me. It's not uh, really it's too late. late. I'll say. <laughs> Well, I can, I can I can do a little for me and mostly for them. It's, How's that? That'll work. That'll buff. <laughs> it's it seems that, and of course, the El Salvador president talking about this a few days ago is Michael Saylor. Bitcoin is hope. Bitcoin is freedom. It's best case scenario. We're gone in three generations, mm-hmm. and forgotten in six. Yet Bitcoin is like a battery. It is energy stored as value, saleable across space and time. It's beyond devil's lifetime and Barbary's lifetime. It's it's beyond the jungle. It's beyond our grandchildren. It's Bitcoin is human labor, energy and time stored for eternity. Until something can break the blockchain. Mm-hmm. And may it never be broken. May it never be broken. It's uh, I can go on a whole tangent, but it's, it seems it seems Bitcoin is it's a it's a separation of money and state. Mm-hmm. I like that analogy when you made it. And, uh, where Satoshi Nakamoto is Martin Luther. The white paper is the ninety-five theses. And Bitcoin is a printing press, decentralizing the production and distribution of information or in Bitcoin's case, wealth, property rights. For the first time in history, your property rights do not depend on a government, on a monopoly of violence. Your house is yours in your town and you pay property tax because the local government allows you to or whoever has the uh, fire superiority, if you will, Mm -hmm. Bitcoin. Encryption, asymmetric encryption, is a much cheaper defense than having an army. Uh, to make an analogy, in, in, in the military, it's generally a rule of three to one. If you're on offense to a, take an objective, you need three times as much men or firepower. So defense has an asymmetry of three to one when you're talking about kinetic warfare, like guys with guns. But with encryption, it might be 101, 1,000 to 1, 10,000 to 1. I mean, what's an army going to do if no army can bring that colonial pipeline back online? It's all cyber. 
Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the white paper was published on October 31st, 2008. And Martin Luther published his 95 theses starting the Protestant Reformation on October 31st, 1517. Huh. huh. I didn't know that. So white paper day is Reformation Day and Halloween. Fantastic. It makes you wonder. There's a lot of things Satoshi thought about even a few years ago that people weren't yet really connecting the dots on. I wonder if there's many more things we'll later discover that Satoshi kind of thought about that we're not kind of seeing. It's not obvious. Mm. Uh, If if there's more, I can't wait to find out. Absolutely. Uh, Devil, before signing up, I did want to ask about... uh, your kind of your 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 brand the devil brand is it going to be yeah just high level recap summarize i know we've talked about linux uh decentralized servers what's what's the devil brand in like three sentences maximum Hmm. your vision for it not what it is right now necessarily your, your, your vision. My vision is going to be teaching the technical skills for the decentralized future, plus a little shit posting on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Always a little shit posting. Yeah. A little bit of mischief never hurt. Absolutely. So a, a little, a little devilish in the, uh, in the jungle. A little- <laughs> Little devil in the player. Awesome. Awesome devil. Uh, thanks for jumping on. Uh, of course. It was a pleasure. And, uh, this was a lot of fun. Episode of Daily DGENs and uh, had Puppy and, and Bully on earlier. And of course, there was the Ox Spaces. So it's been a lot, a lot of chit chatting and all night. I love it. it. It keeps you awake. It's like when you're driving long hours and you call or someone calls you and you just like just talking and engaging. It's, uh, it's invigorating. For sure. I hope really like your format again. too. Yeah, this is fun, and I hope that uh, you keep doing these. I'll be listening. I, long run, we'd like to get it in with Bully earlier. Sponge jumped on, so it was it was kind of like a three way. More, it's not game; it's three way, right? More fun with three way. Uh, it's <laughs> having more like a larger and in spaces can help with this. Is almost an intellectual sparring, debate, conversational ish, but kind of different perspectives and, and maybe one common subject. So it's like, all right, for 20 minutes, we're going to talk about X. We're going to talk about decentralization versus centralization of protocols, Linux servers, mm-hmm. DeFi, and, uh, and, and they have an audience and, and, and people come up and kind of share their position. It's uh, more engagement. I find a lot of podcasts, it's, it's like you got to do the one-on-one dialogue, but doing that all the time is like, it doesn't feel as natural than mm-hmm. like the discord chats are, are ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It's a free for all in there. <laughs> it is a free for all. That's yeah. uh discord chat is free for all. Big time devil, devil, everybody. All right. Thanks again, devil. Uh, until next time. Have a good night, man. Yes, sir. Good night. Bye-bye. <laughs>